Today we turn our attention to the single greatest picture in the Old Testament of salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. We have uh, this concept that theologians talk about as typology. And types are Old Testament pictures, symbols, uh, uh, shadows, in fact, Hebrews calls them, of things that would come to fruition in fullness in the New Testament and in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so these are God-designed foreshadowing of this future gospel in Jesus. If you read the book of Hebrews, it lists many of these, the tabernacle, the temple, the Levitical system, uh, etc. All of these describing the shadows that we find in the Old Testament of Jesus in the New Testament. Now let me illustrate it this way. Last year we uh, went to an amusement park and one of the things that uh, my wife especially wanted to do in the amusement park is she wanted to get cut out silhouettes of our daughters, okay? So this was somewhat of a new thing to me, but her mom, when she was a kid and they went to an amusement park, got one of these, it hung on her wall as a child all her life. She wanted to have one of these done for, uh, for our girls, and so we did. And I have them here. Uh, I'm gonna set them up. And so here is one. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing before. A cutout silhouette of, of, of them. I thought about lighting a candle in front of these. <laughs> and I still think that would have been a good idea. But uh, So I, I watched the artist do the cutout, free-handed it. Looked at a picture, our girls were there, she just looked at a picture, and she free-handed the shape of the profile of our, of our daughters. And it really was kind of an amazing thing to see uh, how she, she did that. And so what we ended up with then is or are silhouettes of our daughters. And these are the shape of our daughters. These are the, the profile of our daughters. But they are not our daughters. They are silhouettes of our daughters. I want you to bear that thought in mind. I'm going to come back to it. Last week, we studied the Passover. If there's a thing in the Old Testament that rivals the Exodus for uh, picturing uh, the gospel, it would arguably be the Passover, where God told Moses to tell all of Israel to, to kill a lamb, to take the blood, to put it on the doorpost around them, around the doorpost, so that the death angel might pass over them, hence the name Passover. As we get into this now, we are in Exodus chapter 12, and Exodus 12 describes the tenth and the final plague, and we already looked at it two weeks ago, uh, but it's important to note in the chronology of the story that, uh, that God sent the death angel, and the death angel took the life of every firstborn who didn't have the blood on the doorpost that was not passed over. And this 10th plague was the final plague because now Pharaoh and Egypt had had enough. We pick up the story in verse 31. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Nine plagues destroys the economy of Egypt, leaves the country of Egypt in ruins, and then the final plague breaks their heart. And uh, even Pharaoh, this hard-hearted Pharaoh, is, has had enough, and he just says, you guys need to go. And the emphasis there is, be gone, like right now, get out of here, we don't want you anymore. And then we had that interesting statement, be gone and bless me also. And we see in this that finally Pharaoh, at least momentarily, has a glimpse, an illumination, that he is not the great God of Egypt, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the great God of Egypt. And he seeks the blessing of, uh, of the God of Israel, which talk about ironic, here's the, the, the maniac who's been doing genocide and enslavement of these people, but in the end, he wants the blessing of God. You're like, really? <laughs> After this? We're gonna circle back to that in a little bit. So all of Egypt agrees with Pharaoh at this point. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Bear in mind, we talk about Egypt. Egypt was the greatest power of its day. It was the richest nation of its day. The riches of it still astonish us. If you've ever been, I think King Tut was at, wasn't he at the, not, I mean his mummy. That's different than his mommy. Uh, Museum of Natural Interest, History of Natural whatever that museum is up there. Um, if, you, if you saw that display, it typically it kind of rolls into town every few years. Uh, the gold and the jewelry, I mean, it's, it's amazing how wealthy Egypt was. The pyramids of Egypt also indicate the incredible wealth that Egypt had. And so we're talking about this incredibly wealthy country that now economically has been savaged by the plagues and, uh, and Israel is asking them, uh, asking them for their possessions. I just note here that Egypt had the money but Israel had God. Which would you choose? And we come to find out that this is actually the fulfillment of a promise that God gave to Abraham some 500 plus years before. So here we go back now to Genesis 15. Listen to the accuracy of this prediction from God. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, note this, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 500 years before. And I'm sure Abraham, when he heard that, was like, how could this be possible? Like, I don't see how that could even happen. Now we know how it happened. 
right here in the story of the plagues and the Exodus. So after 10 terrible plagues, the people of Egypt are beside themselves. They're ready for Israel to be gone. God tells the Israelites, hey, as you go, ask the folks there in Egypt to give you a little something. Now, some of the English translations go with the word borrow. And I think this means borrow in that permanent sense of the word. Maybe you've had somebody borrow a tool from you and you've never, you, know, you never see it again, or a book, uh, something like that. That's the kind of borrowing that they were doing. And the result of this is that the combination of the heart of the Egyptians to want to get them out and God working in their hearts, they basically gave the Israelites all of their wealth. I can kind of see it happening this way. The Israelites said, hey, we're leaving. You got anything that maybe could help us on our way? And the Egyptians were like, here's my jewelry. Here's grandma's brooch. Here's my cash. I'll throw in the silverware. Now get out of here before we're all dead. That was the sense of it. Now we know also that this wealth would prove to be a stumbling block a little later in the story because it is the gold of Egypt that is given to the Israelites that makes the golden calf. But that's another story. We'll maybe get to that. Look at verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude went up also with them. And what this means is that it wasn't just the Jews that were leaving. There were Egyptians who saw the plagues and said, you know what, I believe in the God of Israel as well. I'm going along with them. One commentator called it the rabble. I like that. So there's this, this huge rabble that is all going with them. Uh, and very much livestock with flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now let me note a few details here. We know this was at night. Pharaoh calls Moses at night and says, get out of here. Israel leaves in the night, leaves Egypt. Now Moses told them to be ready. And I think most of them were kind of ready, not really knowing what was going on, not realizing that they were about to walk out into the desert never to return again. There's being ready for a trip, and then there's the, like, I'm walking out of my house never to return again kind of ready. Apparently, most of the Israelites were not that kind of ready. And the scale here is breathtaking. The text says there were 600,000 men. And, you know, the scholars have calculated that if you added women and children at a typical ratio for a family at that time, we're talking about like 2 million people in this group. And that number is debated amongst the scholars as well uh, because it's hard, for, it's hard to mathematically figure out how 70 people who left uh, Canaan with Jacob and Joseph and went down to Egypt for, after 400 years for those 70 to now be 2 million, the scholars are like, we don't see how that could happen. Further, there's things in the, in the Exodus that are also hard to imagine. Like how do you walk 2 million people through a body of water like the Red Sea. How long would that take to happen? And so there's logistics there that make people go, I don't know. 
In the end, uh, we'll just go with the big number and someday in heaven we'll say, God, what was the actual number there? Was that an estimate or, you know, I don't know. But that's what it says, okay? Two million people. And then there's herds and flocks of animals. I mean, this is, if you've ever watched uh, uh, the Ten Commandments movie, they kind of capture that, where it's just sort of like this crazy pell-mell rabble all leaving at the same time. Uh, and you realize this thing was not organized. I mean, this was just, I mean, we have a hard enough time getting the kids to come up on the stage and walk down. And there's like 50 of them. Imagine two million people. Never done this before. What are we going? What are we doing? You know? Is there a McDonald's on the way? I'm hungry. And there's a lot of sort of like bodily functional sort of things that also become questionable how they did this. But all we know is that this was a God thing. And they walk into the wilderness. They just walk into darkness. Other than another detail I'm about to get to. It wasn't actually so dark for them. Now, of all the details of this that we could choose for Moses to include in the story, some of which I just mentioned, uh, it's the least interesting one that he spends the most time on. Did you hear it as I read the text? It's in there several times. They note the height of the bread. Hmm. And how they wrapped... The, the dough in their clothes to keep it from rising and how they made bread later. What's with the bread? Like, I want to know about what weapons were they carrying as they went out and, you know, things like that. Enough about the bread. The next chapter, God is going to establish the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is one of the major feasts in the Jewish calendar. Again, we kind of go, why is the bread so important to God, to Moses and the Holy Spirit who inspired him to include it here? Well, the bread was an indication of the haste with which they had to leave. They didn't even have time to take care of the most basic thing that you need, which is bread. Even the bread wasn't ready for this. So it's, a, it's an important indication and reminder that this was a God thing. You know, one of the rub points with my lovely bride, Jennifer, who's in the first row, and so I, I told the story freely in first service. Now I'll be careful. Um, <laughs> so one of the rub points we've had in our marriage, and it's the only one, babe, truly, it's the only one, uh, is that uh, before a trip, Jennifer is a pack well in advance person. I am a pack at the last minute person. And I sort of use the fact that we gotta get on the road to kinda get me going and to pack it and to, and to go. So we've had this conflict whenever there is a trip coming, and I have decided to show Jennifer who's boss in our marriage <laughs> by now packing for trips days in advance myself But you know how this goes. Like when you know there's a trip coming, especially if it's a big trip, you're like, okay, I gotta figure out what are, what are we gonna need on this trip? Clothes, and are we gonna need food? And the, the bigger the trip and the longer advance you plan, the more sort of organized it is, and, and uh, the, your suitcase indicates something. 
Whereas if it's a last minute thing, you get a call in the night, family member's been hurt or whatever, and you're just like throwing things in the suitcase and you rush out the door, that also indicates something as well. And that is what the bread is all about. The bread indicates that Israel, this was not something that they did. This was not something they planned. Even their bread wasn't ready. This was a God thing. This was God expelling them out of Egypt. This was God providing for them all along the way. A little more of that in in a moment. Look at verse 40. The, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt, so that this same night, in a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And this statement is a kind of, it's a kind of summary chronological statement from the time of the patriarchs, okay, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you could argue, when Jacob and Joseph go down to Egypt, when Joseph has ascended to be the second most powerful person in Egypt, to the time of the Exodus, it says here, 430 years. And I, I debate at times when I'm preaching, I'm like, do I need to even bring up debates? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But this is also something that is, that is uh, debated in terms of the exact years that they uh, were there. And one of the challenges that we have in our modern day is we want to impose our understanding of, like, you know, specific time. I mean, here we are. Many of you probably have a watch on your wrist that is connected to a satellite in space, and your time is exact to the atomic millisecond. Such is the day that we live in. In this day, they kept uh, time with sundials and moon phases. And so sometimes we impose our understanding of time on, on people who had a different, uh, a different way of looking at it. But what we can celebrate is what this says, that the centuries of waiting, the centuries since Abraham was promised that, God, that they were gonna come out of Egypt, that God did it. And he did it in a most remarkable way. And we see the faithfulness of God to bring his people out of Egypt, out of their bondage. This is, this is the key moment in the Jewish story. And so we're gonna stop there, and uh, I wanna just pull back now and look at this text in terms of like, what do we learn here? How do I apply this? What is this all about? And I have three categories I wanna talk with you about today. What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about God? And then thirdly, what do we learn about salvation in Jesus Christ? And this has a lot to say in all three of these categories. So, what do we learn about ourselves? Let's talk about Pharaoh a second. Here we have this enigmatic character, Pharaoh, and uh, if you're like me, when I watch a superhero movie or something like that, I tend to, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to relate to and identify with the hero in the story, not very often the villain in the story. And in the story of Exodus, Pharaoh is clearly the villain in the story. And yet he represents so much about what we are actually like. We we were like, I want to be Moses, you know, but really we're more Pharaoh. 
and what we see in Pharaoh's heart. After the plague softened his heart, especially the 10th one, he says, get out of here. But then you know that he says, and bless me also. This reminds us of ourselves. We so often want God's blessing in our life, don't we? In fact, if we were to listen to our prayers, so many of our prayers, my, my own included, are kind of prayers seeking God's blessing. God bless me today, bless my family, bless my children, bless my vocation. You know, we seek God's favor and God's blessing because we instinctively know we're better if God's blessing are our life. And here we have, here we have Pharaoh similarly acknowledging, I'm not God, he's God, and I want, I want his, his blessing. But he wants it on his own terms. He doesn't want it on God's terms. I love this quote. It says this, what, what, what can we say with certainty is that there was no real repentance on the part of the king. He gave no recognition of any personal responsibility. He wanted the blessing without the liability, the shame, or the consequences. He simply desired the plagues to be gone. We know this to be the case because once the immediate shock following the final plagues had subsided, the Egyptian king pursued the Hebrews in order to destroy them. How often as a pastor, you know, as a pastor, I have a view of my own life, but because of my role here, I have kind of a bird's eye view on many people's lives and the way that many people respond to trials and crisis and problems. And to my eye, there are a lot of people like Pharaoh, and I know I do this myself, where they want God's blessing, but they don't want it on God's terms. I remember one example of this. There was a guy many years ago that um, was an occasional attender of our, of our church, and then he got arrested. And the day after, he was in a panic. He had to meet with me, uh, and uh, we met in tears, and you know, like, you know, he had this big sort of come to Jesus thing. And for maybe a couple months even, if we had a service, he was here, you know, there he was. If we had a prayer meeting, there he was. I mean, we could have uh, had a bush trimming uh, service day, he would have been here. Like he was just, oh, until the day the charges were dropped. I don't think I've seen him at church since. And this is the human instinct. We recognize we're the creature, he's the creator, life is hard, things happen. And so often we want to bargain with God and we want his blessing in our life. And there might even be some of you here today who even being here today is a kind of bargaining chip that you have with God. You've got a tough week coming or maybe Tuesday something happens and in your mind you're like, I went to church on Sunday. How can this be? God, what do you, I mean, I did that. You did that. We get this sort of transactional thing going with God. And we see with Pharaoh what what wanting God's blessing without true repentance looks like. What would it have looked like for Pharaoh to repent? What would it look like? Well, Pharaoh would have had to say, I'm no longer Pharaoh of Egypt. He would have to take off his royal robes and his clothes, walk down, get on a cart or a donkey, and head into the wilderness with God's people. 
And that was something Pharaoh could not bring himself to do. And friends, I want you to see an example in Pharaoh of what not to do, okay? Life and God, this is not about us getting God on our side. This is about us getting on God's side, okay? And that comes as I repent of my sin and I am contrite about my, my rebellion against God and I join in God and I want God's will in my life. I can pray like the Lord's Prayer. Uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want God to come and bless me. I, I want to get on God's side and experience the blessing that goes with being on his side. And so if you are here today and maybe your heart is hard like Pharaoh and yet you want the blessing of God, I would urge you to do it on God's terms. Repent. Repent of the sin in your life. Surrender to God. Call upon the name of Jesus for salvation and ask for his help. Or to say it this way, to get to the promised land, you have to leave Egypt. And that's true for Pharaoh, Moses, the Israelites, and for us here today. So quit trying to get God on your side, get on his side. That's something we learn about ourselves. It's quiet in here, can you just amen that one? I think that, that one connects with my, my own heart as well. Yeah, HP campus would have clapped on that point probably. All right, secondly, what do we learn about God? And this is something hermeneutically, interpretively, that you always want to ask anywhere in the Bible, because the whole Bible is about God, and we learn about the character of God, and certainly in the Exodus, we learn about the character of God. What do we learn? i got three things I want to highlight here with you. We learn about God's power, his promise-keeping, and his presence. So we start with his power. It's an astonishing thing, the plagues and the Exodus, I mean, we sort of read the story, but if you really get into the details of it, it's astonishing the power that God put on display and to realize this is the tip of his finger. It's not like God was in heaven after the 10th plague going, well, I'm exhausted. This is just the tip of the finger of the power of God. It is nothing for him. Who but God could orchestrate circumstances like this from the calling of Moses at the burning bush, uh, to the, the Nile turning red, to locusts, to Pharaoh and his, and his heart, all these things. If you step back for a moment and realize that with no effort at all, God brings the mightiest nation on earth to its knees. And by the way, we live in the mightiest nation on earth today, and it also would be no sweat for him to bring the United States of America to its knees. This is the God we serve. This is his power, this is his might, this is his majesty and his grandeur and his greatness. And God, we just, we worship you today for your amazing power. Secondly, promise keeping. I mentioned earlier that God promised to Abraham 500 years prior this is what's gonna happen. They're gonna be servants, I'm gonna bring them out by my mighty hand, and they're gonna leave with great possessions. For us, we make promises and we forget by the next day. God never forgets a promise that he makes. 
Every promise in the Bible, it's been 2,000 years since many of these promises were written down in the Bible for us, and we might be like, man, these are dusty promises. I don't know if God's gonna actually remember. Here we have a specific 500-year-old promise, and God fulfills it precisely. This is his character. He is a promise-keeping God. The Bible says that God can't lie that he is utterly true, he is utterly light. And so when we read in the Bible precious promises that God makes to us about meeting our needs in in Christ Jesus and and, uh, saving us to the uttermost and when we die, going to heaven and eternal life and the new heaven, the new earth and all of these things that as Christians, all we have is promises and it's like we're hanging on to these promises like this. And we wonder, is God gonna be true? Look at Abraham. And look at 500 years. It's an example, one small example, but a wonderful one of the promise-keeping God. Now, I'll tell you one person who got this, and that's Joseph. Okay, Joseph got it. Look at verse 19. This is describing the Exodus. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. The patriarch Joseph, there in Egypt, he says, God said you're going to leave. When you go, I want you to take my bones. 400 years later, there's some kind of a box or whatever they had. And out Joseph bones go, because Joseph wanted to be buried where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were buried in the promised land. And that's what it means to trust the promises of God. Joseph had it. Be a Joseph is what I'm saying. Trust the character of God. He is a promise-keeping God. And God, we worship you today as a promise-keeping God. And thirdly is presence. Look at verse 21, chapter 13. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And we're gonna see more about this before the Red Sea crossing, but just to highlight the fact, you're like, how did they walk out into the darkness and into the wilderness? It wasn't dark because the the glory of the light of God illuminated their path, and God put that pillar and that cloud there so that no matter where they were, no matter how discouraged they were, they could just look up and see God is with us. Look there, the cloud. Look at the fire. God is with us, and we see that God wants to assure his people of his abiding presence with us. And here we live in the new covenant, we have all these promises, we have you know, the gospels, we have the story of Jesus, but we have the Holy Spirit who is God's presence with us and is an assurance that no matter where we go, that he is there with us always, even to the end of the age. Dear God, we're so thankful for your abiding presence by your spirit with us. And that's what we learn about God, that and many other things, but all that I'm going to talk about. Because I want to get to the third point, because this is my main thing here. As I said at the beginning, the Exodus is the clearest picture in the entire Old Testament of what salvation through Jesus would be like. 
And so now I come back to the aforementioned loveliness here in these silhouette cutouts. And I want to highlight to you that these silhouettes are the shape of my daughters. They are not my daughters. They are the outline of their loveliness, but not the full expression of their loveliness. And similarly, when you read the Exodus uh, in the Old Testament, these are the clearest silhouettes of what God would someday do in fullness in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So one study Bible, and there's probably many that do this, one study Bible I have, uh, lists some of these. I added some of the, on my own here, but let's see the connections between the Exodus, the silhouette, and the fullness in Jesus Christ. In the Exodus, God remembers his covenant. In the gospel, God remembers the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Exodus, his people are enslaved. In the gospel, we're all enslaved to sin. In the Exodus, it is the Passover lamb, that blood on the doorposts that causes the judgment to pass over. In the gospel of Jesus, it is Jesus' own blood that covers and atones for our sins. In the Exodus, they were saved from death. In the gospel, we are saved from death to eternal life. In the Exodus, our redemption price is paid. In the gospel, our redemption price is paid. In the Exodus, it was by the power of God. Same thing in the gospel. We are saved by the power of God. In the Exodus, it included Jews and Gentiles. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people, no matter what your ethnicity or race. It was by the miracles of God there in the Exodus. And guess what? We are saved by the miracles of God today. In the Exodus, Moses mediates. In the new covenant, in the gospel, it is Jesus that is our faithful high priest and mediates the gospel benefits to us. It was a Red Sea crossing there in Exodus. Now we kind of walk through a kind of water in baptism. In the Exodus, it was heading to the promised land. And guess what, folks? We're all heading to the promised land, a place called heaven. It was Israel's Exodus. The gospel is the church's Exodus. That and on we could go. But here's what I want you to realize, is that none of this is by mistake. It's not a coincidence. It's not a happen chance. There was a God, by divine design, orchestrating circumstances in the Old Testament, shapes and silhouettes, so that in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we could look back and go, ah, how did I miss it? I mean, even to realize that Jesus himself went to Egypt as a child to escape Herod, and that God summoned him out. Matthew says it fulfilled the Old Testament where God said, out of Egypt I call my firstborn son. It's almost like how many clues do we need for how and what this was all about? One writer says that the Exodus is the Easter of the Jews. It is the one redemptive act that even today, modern day Judaism goes back again and again to the Exodus as an indication of God's redemption of his people. We see in Acts 7, Stephen, the, the first martyr of the church, telling the story of the Old Testament leading up to Jesus, and he spends tons of time talking about the Exodus. In Hebrews 11, we have the chapter of faith, all the heroes of the Old Testament. 
The people around the Exodus are mentioned more than anything else. The patriarchs, like Joseph, looked forward to the Exodus. The Jews, ever since, look back to the Exodus. We have the Egyptians joining Israel, not all of them, but some of them, showing again that this salvation forever and ever in Jesus is a salvation that is for everyone, to all who will trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you might be here today and you say, oh, the Exodus, yeah, I made for a good movie, but big whoop. Why should I care? And what I would say to you, you should care about this for the same reason that Jennifer and I care about these. And why, after the service, if you do anything to mess around with these, you are in serious trouble in this church. <laughs> now, why would we care about these silhouettes? Is it because we love the paper? Oh, the grade of paper. It's an amazing, it's an amazing paper. Is it the, the oh, the frames, the frames. No. It's not even the shape. It is that these represent two daughters that we love with all of our hearts. And because we love them, things that are shaped like them remind us of them. We treasure them as well. And so for every faithful Christian who loves Jesus and loves the gospel, as you read through the Old Testament, and this is true for the tabernacle, the temple, Levitical, all these other things, but it is certainly true of the Exodus. We love the Exodus because it silhouettes to us the ministry of Jesus Christ. So this is more than just history. It's not just interesting national migration. It is much more than religious history or Egyptian lore. We love the Exodus because it silhouettes our own personal Exodus out of the bondage of sin and death. It silhouettes our own awakening to the power of God and his desire to save us. It silhouettes our, our own astonishment that God would save us from death and pass over our sin. It silhouettes that my salvation was totally God's doing. It silhouettes that now I am free in Christ. It silhouettes that I am on a journey to a future home promised by God, whose power will sustain me and promises assure that he is always with me, even to the end of the age. And so therefore, when properly seen, the Exodus stirs holy affections in the new covenant believer because it reminds us of Jesus. He is the better Moses. He is the better Passover lamb. He is treasure greater than Egyptian gold or silver. And so today, I don't really care if you get who Moses is. But I very much care that through Moses, you get who Jesus is. And that you realize that like Pharaoh, your heart is hard. So is mine. And that by faith now, the promise of God is that all who trust and believe in, not Moses, but in Jesus, that God will pass over our sin because his blood was the price paid for our guilt. And his promise is, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so I ask you today, I ask you today, is Jesus your savior? 
You know, these silhouettes, they look really good. My daughters look better. And all these silhouettes in the Old Testament, they look good. Fascinating. You can get a PhD in them if you want to. But Jesus is far better. And I would encourage you to take a step of faith. Shed your sense of royalty and divinity like Pharaoh would have had to do. Humble yourself. Find a donkey and get out of Egypt. You know, to get to the promised land, you have to leave Egypt. And we have to give up our sin on all these things that drag us down in order to reach the promised land with Jesus. So I would urge you to do that. And if you do, today is your exodus. Amen.